Uh, all right. Well, uh, we would like to welcome our special guest, Mr. Andrew Pascal, who's sitting right uh, to my right hand side here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I have my top secret note sheet that I will not let him look at. But uh, you know, since we, I think we anticipate we're going to have to try to dig deep to get some answers out of you today. So, yeah, would you please state your name for the record, sir? <laughs> My name is Andrew Pascal. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about your history <laughs> because you have had a very interesting career that uh, you know has gone between Silicon Valley and Las Vegas back and forth. So, hopefully, I've got this right, and if not, please correct me. So, um, Silicon Gaming. You guys remember the Odyssey machines, the way way ahead of their time, you know, those touch screens? Wow. All right. Um, and then uh, a, a company called WagerWorks. You guys remember WagerWorks? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I remember playing lots of Wager, like trying to game the thing by, you know, scripting my computer to push the button millions of times. So you was were that, that guy. Uh, well, I'm sure I wasn't nice. the only one. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, and then a, a company called Win Resorts. Yeah, ever heard of them? I don't know. Um, and uh, after a, a sounding applause, well, well, well yeah. you know, come on, guys, be nice. Yeah, come on. Yeah. <laughs> a tough crowd today. And uh, yeah, seriously. Yeah. And um, and then you left Win uh, after. What was your title at, when you left? President of. I was the president of Win Las Vegas and Encore. Right. Okay. Yep. So your responsibilities then were for all operations at both resorts. Yes, but my partner over there, Rob Oslin, really ran the place. Ah. And Rob has joined you now, which we'll talk about, because I think there's an interesting story around uh, the team you're, you're putting together. But um, you decided to leave Wynn, and then you went on to form a company called Play Studios, which many of you may know. If you don't know that name, you probably know MyVegas, which is the primary product offering, correct? Cool. Yes. Um, and then apparently that wasn't enough. Uh, but in this in this case, uh, you didn't quit. You decided I have you know extra time on my hands. I'm going to uh, develop a new resort on the Las Vegas Strip that's going to be called Elon. Right? Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. Um, you missed where I actually started my career. Okay, please. At the Golden Nugget uh, down here downtown. So yeah. uh, working for Steve Wynn and. Uh, that's where it all started for me. I probably learned more in those early, very formative years than uh, just about any other time. So it was, a, it was a magical time. What kind of jobs did you have coming up? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, a lot of them. So I worked as a, a, an attendant in the slot club, which was the 24-karat club. And I worked as an attendant in the sports book. And then I rotated through just about every front of house position you could imagine, from front desk, concierge, room reservations, credit and collections, uh, special events, casino marketing, resort marketing. Uh, so it was, it was a great experience. It was my opportunity. OK, am I supposed to swallow this? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> you got to get right on it. OK. Um, it, it, was, it was an amazing experience, because it really gave me just a very broad kind of understanding and perspective on everything that was going on in one of these resorts. And it was fascinating, because if you think about it, you have just about every imaginable business under one roof. So, uh, you know, as a kid coming out of school, not really knowing what it was that I wanted to focus on, to actually go and work for one place and have an opportunity to kind of move around 
and start to figure that out was a really unique opportunity. I can imagine. It must have been uh, pretty fascinating. How, how did you get into technology stuff, though? Have, have you always been interested in technology, or how, how did that happen? The gaming stuff seems natural, because you have the family relationship and... Um, at least an opportunity to do stuff there, but how did the technology yeah. thing start? Well, I grew up in San Francisco. So, you know, my parents were divorced at a pretty early age, and my father lived here, and my mom lived in San Francisco, and I lived with her, and so, you know, I, I kind of had a foot in both valleys. So it was, <laughs> uh, it was really cool. I, I, growing up and being in and around that environment in, in the Bay Area where, you know, just about anything seems to be possible, uh, you know, I kind of was bit early by the whole entrepreneurial bug and, uh, and then was completely enamored with Las Vegas. I'd come here for vacations and to hang out with my dad in the summers, and, you know, this place was just magical. And so, you know, I've kind of bounced back and forth between those two worlds, you know, kind of learning what I can in one and applying it to the other. And so it's been, it's been pretty fun. When you decided that you wanted to develop the Frontier property... <laughs> What was the decision-making process there? How, how did that idea start forming in your mind? You know, it, was, um, it really was born out of just talking to people generally about Las Vegas. You know, I, I had founded and started Play Studios, and, you know, so obviously, you know, that whole business opportunity is deeply rooted in people's fascination with Las Vegas and their overall interest in this place. And, you know, kind of following the global financial crisis or the recession, you know, everybody was generally talking about how Las Vegas, certainly having been deeply impacted by the recession, how it was kind of past its prime. Uh, there were a string of new resorts that had opened up and clearly fallen quite short of expectation, which was kind of a first for Las Vegas. Um, and, and so generally, it felt like, you know, people had this perception of Las Vegas as, as kind of being... Um, just continue to be distressed. And I, I didn't see that or feel that, and I don't think the numbers really reflect that. You know, as I was kind of looking at the market and conducting business here, what I recognize is that there was record visitation and record revenues, and, you know, people's interest in the market seemed to be, you know, bigger than ever. So I started to think about, you know, where is the market today and where is it likely to go and how has it changed over the last, you know, 15 years uh, whether it be because of the contraction in the economy or whether it was because of all the consolidation in the market, you know, which really impacted, you know, that whole spirit of entrepreneurship that existed when you had these independent developers and operators that were intensely competing with one another and all finding their own place in the market and creating these really fanciful resorts and, and now feeling a bit more institutional in terms of how it was being run and managed. And, and so, I, you know, I just started to you know, work my way through all of those different dynamics, and I felt like, you know what, there's really an enormous opportunity for a different kind of place, a place that really honors what Las Vegas was in its earlier days, uh, when it was really founded by these uh, individual entrepreneurs who were so deeply committed to realizing their vision for their projects. And, and really focused on delivering an experience to their consumer that was really fulfilling. Um, and I know that that's, that's certainly what we tried to do when 
we were working at Wynn and servicing and trying to appeal to a particular market here, the, the higher end of the market that comes to Las Vegas. And so, you know, just felt like there was an opportunity to invest in a new kind of place and continue to grow and expand the market uh, instead of just getting overly focused on the opportunities that kind of are already here and already proven and, and kind of frankly overcapitalizing on them. Uh, felt like it was time to invest in something different. And so with that as the, the seed of the idea, or the, that was the motivation for saying, okay, well, what would work and where should the market go in light of where the, the current market is? And very quickly arrived at the vision for what Elon is and spent a lot of time collaborating with my former partners and colleagues and refining the overall idea and the direction for it. And the more energy we invested in thinking about it and really getting to work on, on modeling it, the, the more convinced we became that it was the right thing. And so we just started to get on with it. And so that's kind of, that was the genesis of it. So June of last year, the local Fox affiliate sort of forced you into making a public statement after some renderings were disclosed. My impression is that was not the way you would wanted to introduce uh, some of this stuff to the market. And I think that's at least part of what forms the folks in the audience's opinion so far. They don't have a lot to go on because you guys have been somewhat stealthy so far. You mentioned the, the um, just sort of what you want this thing to be. Is there anything you can articulate that might help shape this thing in people's minds a little bit more than what they have so far to go on, which is not a whole lot? <laughs> <laughs> He's squirming now. Yeah, a little, little bit. Um, well, look, let me. I, I'll talk a little bit about maybe the the bigger ideas for it. Um, you're right. Uh, you know, the renderings were kind of disclosed. We knew that it would likely happen. Uh, they're not the renderings of what the resort will really look like. Uh, we knew. First of all, we we generally. Um, we, we recognized the project was going to go through a fairly extensive design development process and would continue to evolve. And uh, we really didn't want to expose or talk about what it is and our ideas for it until we really were prepared. And we also feel like keeping it shrouded a bit uh, and creates this kind of mystery and curiosity about the place that we could ultimately capitalize on. Uh, when we were ready to engage with our ultimate consumers and get them excited about it. And so, you know, to do it now doesn't really benefit us. To do it later certainly would a lot. And so for that reason, we just don't talk about it that much. Um, so w with that said, you know, we have to go through a process with the county here to, to get the project approved, which means that you've got to submit you know, your plans and your ideas in, in, a, in a fairly comprehensive way. Uh, and we knew that those would ultimately become public record and everybody would go and dig in and get a sense for what the place is. And, and so many of them have. Uh, and that's okay because, you know, while I think it reflects some of our thinking around the ultimate organization of the elements and, and how the place is configured, it really reveals very little about the true character and spirit of it. And that we're going to hold off and, and wait to reveal until we get a lot closer to our opening. Which is when? Which is uh, in several years. <laughs> <laughs> um, How many is several? <laughs> 
you know, hopefully uh, less than more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm pushing the buttons on the uh, voice recording thing. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, what do you feel is missing from Las Vegas Strip Resort offerings now? You must have identified a hole or holes in the market where you see an opportunity. What's missing? Um, people that really care about the experience they're delivering to their consumer. Okay. Um, let's see. That's an interesting. <laughs> I, I know that's a great. It's a great answer. I could go a lot of different directions with that one. Um, maybe uh, this. Let me ask you this. The wrap around the site mentions uh, 2018, I believe, as a, as a possible as a possible date. Let's so let's let's, I, let me I, ask you. Can I expand on my full range? Yeah, please. Because you know that was a little bit. Um, the, the truth of it is, you know, I'm close to a lot of people that are responsible for running these different properties here in town, and 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 to characterize them maybe as not caring is probably unfair. Um, I, I think that what's missing is a little bit of what I alluded to, which is, you know, real proprietors, you know, people that, you know, show up every day in their resort and just so carefully attend to every detail and aspect of it. And it's just so important that you have a presence. And if you don't have a presence, that doesn't mean that you can't deliver something of value and that's compelling to the consumer. But if you really want it to be authentic and to have real substance, then the, the people got to be present, you know? Uh, and so I think there's a little bit of that that's missing. And, and look, that's a structural problem. You know, by definition, you know, guys like, uh, you know, Jim Yuren can't hang out in every one of the hotels that they're responsible for managing. And um, but, you know, guys like Sheldon Adelson or Steve Wynn, and if you remember back to the days of, you know, Bill Bennett and Mike Ensign and, and Kirk Kikorian, and I imagine even before then, you know, when Jane Sarno really kind of set it all, uh, started it all, um, you know, these were guys that were guys like Benny Binion, you know, mm -hmm. and the Binion family. And, you know, you'd walk across the street and there he was, you know. Uh, and. And so I, I think Las Vegas, you know, was always based on kind of personalities and the personalities that infused each of these resorts and properties with, you know, their own unique identity. And, and so I, I think that's what's missing, you know. And so I think there's a, just an enormous opportunity to really focus on doing something that is, um, you know, that's really carefully curated and tended to. Uh, and now, that, that from a from a philosophical point of view, I think that's what's missing, or where the opportunity lies. From a model perspective, you know, I think that the you know resorts that have been built and continue to get built generally have followed the paradigm that Steve Wynn introduced with the Mirage back in 1989. And if everybody remembers, you know, everyone was highly critical of it and said that it was going to fail. And of course. It was overwhelmingly successful, and because of his success, uh, a whole bunch of capital became available to the other entrepreneurs that were here in the market, and everybody kind of looked at that paradigm and said, well, let's kind of do more of that, but our own flavor of it. And all of a sudden, you see what is the modern-day Las Vegas, you know, kind of happen over the course of the 90s. And so, you know, but the truth of it is the market's just changed so dramatically, 
And if you look at it today and the composition of revenues and the types of consumers and people that are coming here and where they're coming from and how they're spending their time and their money and, you know, the, it's just very different. But yet we just continue to keep building the same stuff, the same composition of stuff. And I think that there's, it's time for a different model and a different complement of these different amenities and a, a different level of execution and an emphasis on, on some different things that, you know, hopefully will uh, will prove out and it'll help kind of set a direction and, and perhaps uh, signal to the markets that there's, Las Vegas is more than alive and well and there's a lot of different ways to create value here and you know, renew people's interest in the market and get a whole bunch of new people to come that, that haven't yet. So that's what we're excited about. The aforementioned property wrap has some, uh, some verbiage on it. I believe it says less about them, more about us. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some high-priced brand consultant got paid a lot of money to create that catchphrase. No, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and would you like to expand on that? Or Not good? really. Okay. <laughs> All, right. Does, All right. Does it need expanding on? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think the idea is for it to be provocative. So I don't want to give any more color to... <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what, what does frisian mean? <laughs> Thrilling. Thrilling. Or a thrill. I think. You use it more than I do now. I love it. It's my favorite <laughs> word. I haven't stopped saying it. Well, good. I had to look that up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant. Um, what, do you think, what do you think it means to be... You're building a new hospitality company. Uh, and my impression with the small amount of time I spent with you is that you have very high standards. What does it mean to build the best hospitality company in the world in 2016? You know, look, I think um, maybe I don't, our ambition is to create a, a really great hospitality and leisure company. And I, I don't know, I don't know if we'll, we'll be among the best in the world. I, I think that it kind of, it comes back to um, assembling a collection of people that are responsible for defining and shaping the different experiences that we ultimately want to deliver to our consumer or to our employees, for that matter. They're, they're as, if not more important. Um, where, you know, first of all, the group needs to be really critical in their thinking. You know, they, they, they just have to be driven to just constantly improve. And so every time we as a group get a bit of positive feedback, what we look at is what's wrong with it, how can it be better, uh, how can we more effectively engage with that consumer. Um, so I think first and foremost, as a, as a culture, we want to be a learning culture within our company. We want to be a collection of really critical thinkers so that we're always challenging one another with that big question, which is, you know, what's next? Or is there a more effective way for us to be doing what we're doing? And then ultimately, I think we want to, to make sure that for all the people that are a part of uh, our enterprise, that they feel uh, enriched as a result of it. Uh, and so whether that is an investor who ultimately makes money or whether it's 
an employee who feels like they're cared for and they're in a safe place uh, and that we are going to invest in them and allow them to achieve whatever their potential is or whether it's our consumer ultimately who wants to just feel like they are the best version of themselves when they are in one of our places. And so, you know, if we can do those things, then we're going to be pretty fulfilled as a group. And if that translates to other people kind of acknowledging us as being among the best, well, well then that would be great. But I think what's most important is for our core constituents that are really connected to us, um, that they ultimately end up feeling that way. Hearing you say those things, it actually, it make, I could imagine uh, someone like Tim Cook saying that about Apple or um, the folks at Google talking about their company. How much is your, your immersion in the Valley's culture how much does that guide your management style? I mean, you talked about questioning assumptions and trying to uh, go beyond and be better. How much of that are you taking from the experience you get working in on the technology side? Look, I think a lot. Um, not necessarily any more than working here in this environment uh, or in this industry. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, working in the Bay Area and having a technology-based uh, content company where you have a, a really diverse collection of people, really creative people and really very highly technical people and very analytical people. And, you know, there's this really broad range of disciplines that you have to figure out some way of integrating. And, you know, I think that uh, the one thing that everybody shares is this um, intellectual curiosity. Uh, and, and that thrives, certainly in the Bay Area. It's, it's what I love about being there and continuing to spend you know, a portion of my time there. Uh, as, as, as challenging as that is, it keeps me refreshed and, uh, and stimulated and constantly challenges me to, to just think a bit differently. Um, and so I think that's really important. I, I would say you know, a, another really important influence for me um, were the people that I, I worked with and for. So, you know, I, I've, I've had the really uh, extraordinary benefit of, of having dear friends and colleagues that I've worked with uh, off and on for decades. And what, a, what an incredible position to be in. And so we, we tend to challenge one another. And because we have so much history with one another, it's, it's, uh, there's no politics I'd like to think, you know, hopefully not. Uh, there's no politics. It's really, we can say and engage with one another on any topic, and we can take a position, and nobody feels threatened or that they're in any way compromising their position or standing. Uh, we, are, we are all kind of equals in our pursuit of, of, you know, what we're doing. And so that's a pretty cool thing. And then I would say that I've had kind of mentors, people that I've admired and that just by watching how they engage with people and treat people is, you know, really taught me a lot. So Elaine Wynn um, is one of those people. She was, without a doubt, the soul of both the Mirage Resorts and Wynn Resorts companies. And so just the way that she cared for everybody, um, just to establish a certain sense of warmth and, and compassion, um, and that you can be that kind of person without undermining 
the accountability, the inherent accountability uh, that you need to have um, in an enterprise. And so, uh, you know, so to, to, to have the benefit of really a great collection of people I work with and pretty amazing people that I've worked for, um, I've, I've just learned a lot. And, and along the way, I can tell you that I have failed spectacularly. <laughs> and, uh, and through those, those unbelievable failings, um, have just learned an amazing amount. You know, you really get kind of tested and you very quickly get focused on the stuff that matters the most. And so you kind of just collect those things along the journey and, and see where it might take you. So. You uh, alluded to your colleagues, folks that you've worked with in the past several times. Um, some of them are, are here today. Um, really top-notch folks. You, so you were able to convince people, uh, some of them in jobs, some of them um, you know, very high paying jobs, very, uh, they're in the great jobs. You came to them and you said, I want you to come do this thing with me. What was your pitch to them? How did you get them to come with you? You know, it's, uh, it, it didn't quite play out like that. Okay. Um, it, it's really one of those things where, and, and I'm not quite sure how to describe this because it, it, it's only happened to me a few times, but you know, when you stumble upon, I guess, a, uh, an idea that just seems so right, uh, so right in terms of the timing, so right in terms of fundamentally what the idea is, it just, it, it just starts to attract the, the right people. And so um, it really was less about my recruiting them and asking them to come and join me, and, and I think more about them really fundamentally thinking about the, the idea of what we were doing and saying, oh yeah, yep, that's, that's, what, I wanna be, that's what I wanna be a part of. And, and it takes a certain type of person, you know, as you pointed out, you know, the people that, that I have the privilege of working with right now you know, are among the most accomplished in our industry in their various disciplines and, you know, left extraordinary positions and certainly have the capacity to go and, and, and identify and target a job with a particular company and go get it. Um, and, and so the fact that they've elected to do this is pretty humbling um, and really exciting. And, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, I've done a number of different startups and there is a cycle that you go through where you are constantly pushing. You're evangelizing and you're selling and you're trying to get people to see that idea and get to that place on their own where they say, oh yeah, that's, that's the thing I want to invest in or commit myself to or be a part of. And then once you get enough people uh, to do that, it becomes very organic and it becomes its own thing and all of a sudden it starts going on its own and it starts pulling you along instead of you having to push it. <clears throat> and that happened faster with this effort than any I've ever been a part of. Any of my own, any of other people's, I mean, just an extraordinary thing has happened where the collection of not just, you know, the, the core team that's been assembled, but even the, the collection of consultants and creative collaborators and you know, designers and engineers and construction management teams and, you know, locally contractors and subcontractors and everything about the way we're approaching our project, we are breaking it down and we're not just following the old paradigm. We're asking people, is there a better way and a better approach that we should be taking 
to realizing the idea of this place and of our company. And people get really, really excited by that, that opportunity. And you gotta, you gotta live up to it too. You know, when, when you ask somebody for their point of view and their opinion and say, how can this be better? You, you better adopt some of their thinking and give them the sense that they really are making an impact. Because if they're not, then it's the same old thing. It's just lip service. But if what they see is that, oh my gosh, these guys, they really are committed to getting it right and, and getting it right based upon how and what we're advocating. And so, man, we want this is something we want to be a part of. And so it's, it's really been pretty inspiring to kind of just be in the environment and, and watch what's going on. Um, so not a lot of leadership being applied by me a ton of collective experience that's come together uh, across the team. And so we'll see. It's, it's pretty cool. I think uh, I would be in trouble if I didn't at least ask. There has been stories in the paper last couple months talking about financing and alluding to that being tighter uh, recently and it potentially impacting you. Is that something that you're concerned about? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I'm concerned about everything. Uh, and if you were to look at the list of things I'm concerned about, that, that's certainly, you know, in the top three. Um, you know, I, I, I think, if, look, for anybody that, you know, kind of follows the overall financial markets, they know that uh, it's certainly been challenging, particularly over the last four months. Uh, you know, the debt markets were effectively non-existent in the latter part of last year. Um, recognizing that you know we've got a project that's going to be uh, is going to rely upon a, a pretty considerable amount of debt um, impacted our capacity to go raise the equity. You know we have a lot of people that are interested, but they just generally felt like there's really no time pressure because to really go fill out and complete the overall project financing is going to require that the market conditions improve. Uh, and so the good news is that they're starting to, or they have over the last several weeks. And so, you know, look, I, I don't think that we are at risk of not securing and getting the funding that we need in order to advance our project. I think it's just taking uh, longer than we would expect. And I would just hope that people recognize that if you think about what we're doing, this is a, this is a multi-billion dollar startup. You know, you're asking people not to invest in uh, a project that is part of an operating business that's you know, already proven and generating profits and cash. And, um, you know, this is in every sense of the word a, a startup. And so, you know, the challenges are pretty enormous. Um, and so we've been out actively marketing and looking to raise our money for, you know, the better part of the last four months, five months. And I can tell you that the reception to the vision and the idea of the place and the underlying business thesis and the model and its capacity to generate value and returns for our prospective investors um, has been deeply vetted and uh, people really savvy, smart institutions uh, believe in and have bought into the idea of it. And so I just, uh, again, I feel like once the market environment improves a little bit, um, we'll be in a position where we'll be able to get the project fully funded and, and we'll be ready to go. With that said, I can tell you that you know, the capital that we've raised already, which helped to finance the acquisition of the land, uh, we also raised enough capital to continue to advance and get through the whole design development and pre-construction cycle. And so, uh, you know, across the collection of key stakeholders, 
Crown Resorts being one, and Oak Tree Capital, which is a $100 billion institutional fund. Um, you know, both continue to be very supportive, and we continue to invest in and advance the project and expand the team. And so, you know, again, internally, we still feel like um, we, you know, we believe in the project and believe it'll happen. And and this is just part of the cycle of trying to realize something that is, uh, you know, that is very challenging. You know, there's a reason why a lot of people and a lot of teams don't do stuff like this. Uh, and so, but we're going to press ahead and we're going to figure out how to get it done. And uh, we look forward to hosting one of these there at some point. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure which room, but... Uh. <laughs> Tell us more about the room we might be in. <laughs> um, speaking of design stuff, you guys are, are in that stage of your process. Um, you're, I'm assuming you're you know, working on concepts, trying to figure out what's going to go where, how it's all going to work. You're going to open the place at some point. Some of that stuff is... I'm sure going to be well received, but is there ever a place that everything's a hit? So how much is of your design thinking is we might need to tweak this later and we need to accommodate for that? Is that ever part of the consideration? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, I think that um, it's just inevitable when you go and you build a place that's, you know, close to 4 million square feet um, that hopefully more of it works than doesn't, but it's inevitable that some of it's not. And so um, you kind of dig in and you go and you reinvent it. And, and you, you dig in and you try to understand why. Uh, and hopefully you can reshape or reconsider and, and come up with something that ultimately will succeed and make a lot more sense. But, um, it, you know, as I sit here today, I feel pretty confident that everything's going to work. <laughs> uh, you know, we, um, we've just so deeply considered every, every little detail of this place. Um, and so I, I think that I think people are going to be pretty captivated by it. On that sort of maybe a similar note, I want to ask you a question about wind. Uh, in your time there throughout that whole process, I would love to hear if, you've, if you can think of one, something where you guys rolled something out. Maybe it was a restaurant or some customer service in initiative or just something, and you look back and you're like, yes, we really nailed that. Like, it just worked fantastic. It was amazing. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there was more stuff that really worked well than didn't. Um, and I, I think generally being pretty critical, you know, what we tended to focus more on was the stuff that wasn't working. Uh, and there was, a, there was a lot of that. Um, you know, the, the show when we opened uh, certainly wasn't really all that well received until uh, Jen Dunn and, and the group kind of went to work and, and helped to reimagine it and, and remarket it. Um, there were a collection of restaurants that didn't work. Our nightlife program didn't work. Um, and if you really think about it, and if you think about the importance of those elements in uh, the modern-day Las Vegas experience, uh, you know, that's a tough thing to overcome, you know, particularly if you consider the importance of nightlife in today's market and the importance that uh, entertainment continues to have. Um, and then, of course, the dining experience. And so, yeah, there, there was a lot needed to be tweaked and refined so that's inevitable, but you know you get more right than not, and I think at the end of the day, if you get the culture right and you get the employees really focused on connecting with the consumer and, and extending a level of service and care 
then I think you overcome those things and you, ha you afford yourself the time to reinvent and, and reimagine and get it right. What's your favorite part of your job? Uh, the, the, the people that I get to work with, you know, just the, the challenge of it, you know, constantly bumping up against uh, those areas where you just feel really insecure about, you know, your, your own sensibilities for something, you know. Uh, it, you know, it's funny, I, I was having a conversation in my, with someone in my other company who was uh, thinking about leaving, and they'd been with the company for over four years, and, and they, they were young, and they said, you know, it's been over four years. Like, that's a long time. And I said, look, time is irrelevant. I said, if there are four different years, and if you look forward and you're pretty well convinced that the next one is going to be different from the four you've just experienced, well, then, then don't leave. It's when you get to a place where the year that you anticipate having doesn't look all that different from the last one or two or five, well, then it's time to move on, and I'll help you. Um, and so, you know, that's just that kind of philosophically, that's the place where I like to spend my time where, and it's stressful as all can be, I mean, but be in a place where you're just constantly uncomfortable and, you know, sitting in a room like this and being challenged about, you're going to get the money for this place? And, you know, when everyone's talking about the fact that you're not, and, you know, so I, I would just say that, you know, bring it on. It's that kind of, be in that mode where you're just uncomfortable and having to be scrappy and figure it out. And, and, and a lot comes from that. You know, you got to have and, and be with the right group of people that don't get spooked by that type of environment. You know, that, you know, we sit around and we talk about very transparently all of our challenges and where we are with the evolution of, of these different companies. And, you know, that's, that's the most exciting thing for me. I, I've got some more questions. I'm totally doing what I always do, which is completely hogging the whole situation. Um, so I want to make sure that you guys have a chance to, uh, to jump in. Um, so while you warm up, uh, I want to ask you, <laughs> as, uh, as you guys are working on this, I mean, what are, what are some of your favorite resort hotels in the world? What are some of the great spots that you go, man, that place is just magic? You know, it's a lot of little moments. It's funny, people ask me that question a lot, like what's your favorite resort or your favorite hotel, and I really don't have one. I mean, there's, there's great hotels that I've experienced in urban settings and resort settings, and, and for me, it, it's little stuff. It's really like the little, this little moment, a terrace, um, a, a certain dining experience that really effectively integrates kind of the indoor environment with an extended space that kind of goes outside and um, you know so I there, there there really isn't any one place that I would highlight for you there's a there's an extraordinary collection of them and then the other thing I would tell you is that I'm not nearly as well traveled as the people that I ultimately want to accommodate at my resort. So, so you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty insecure about my own sensibilities for this stuff, which is why, you know, when I go out and look to bring people onto the team, I go and find people that, you know, are, are really extraordinary and have just an unbelievable uh, broad um, 
frame of reference. And so, you know, my design architect uh, grew up and it was from Chile and, you know, kind of got his architectural degree and then studied under the great California modernists. Um, and so he taught, and then he's traveled all over the place. He's a passionate traveler. And so he just brings such a, a worldly point of view. And, you know, we have interior designers from Canada and Europe and or throughout Europe. And, um, you know, and then, and then the people on the team that have also have a very, you know, kind of international and, and kind of broad perspective or sensibility. And so, you know, we, we sit around and we talk a lot about, you know, where do you, just that question, what are your favorite moments, you know? If this is the emotional response or connection that we want someone to have at this particular moment or place in the resort or in the cycle of their day at the resort, where have you felt that way? And then everybody contributes kind of their ideas and then we go and explore and we use that as a source of inspiration. And then kind of arrive at a creative direction and brief which then informs the design process. So, um, you know, that, that question is probably better posed to you know, the extended collection of creative people that we have on the team. Dave? I got something. It's, I'm gonna flip over a question that I was asked, which is, what did you miss about being on the hospitality side? What did you miss the most? Uh, I'm not quite sure if I understand. Meaning when I shifted out into yeah. doing my technology-based startups, yeah. what did I miss? Yeah, because I, I interviewed you at Play Studios a couple years ago, and you seem pretty... I don't want to say content, but pretty settled there. And I said, well, would you ever think about going back to hospitality? And I didn't see that, oh, yeah, this is what I really want to do. So what, what did you miss the most about being on the hospitality side that would draw you back in? Well, I mean, I missed... Um, it's, it, they're, they're so wildly different uh, experiences. You know, I, I talk a lot about how, you know, in the hospitality business, you really... Um, in terms of the majority of the people, you know, if we, when we open, have on roster, you know, 3,500 to 4,000 people, you know, you go and you hire people because of their personalities, and you train, and you hopefully help them acquire the skills that they need to perform their job, and you make it really easy for them so that their personality comes through, and they, they have the presence of mind and, and, and the, the, the opportunity to really connect with the guest. In the kind of technology world, uh, you hire the skills that you need and then you kind of manage around and deal with the personalities. <laughs> and so, you know, they're, they're two completely different set of kind of management and leadership challenges. And so, um, you know, I, I, missed, uh, I, I missed the people. I missed, um, you know, there's a certain, uh, I missed the connection to the consumer Mm-hmm. You know, we our whole our whole approach to you know mobile gaming is is pretty unique in that we do service um, a lot of customers directly, so we get some of that. But you know, there's no substitute. When I when I was having a bad day at Win, I, I literally would just you know go downstairs and walk around the floor and talk to lots of employees and lots of customers, and you know you kind of get a sense from them how much they just appreciate and are enjoying the experience that everyone is, is helping to deliver and, and it just kind of it puts you in a, a different frame of mind. So, you know, so I, I think the, the direct connection to the consumer uh, I missed and, and then the people that, you know, I worked with for a long time here that, you know, I get to work with now. So Nice. I'd love to ask you uh, a, a more designy type question, operational question. Um, nightclubs. 
they are they have become quite popular. Uh, they make a lot of money. Um, how how do we see this going forward? Let's imagine a hypothetical property. We'll call it Schwinn Las Vegas, <laughs> and it has a successful nightclub um, that brings in a certain clientele. It has its other set of clientele that it's worked hard to build and bring in. Um, are those two compatible? And why does the whole room shake when uh, I'm trying to go to sleep? How do you? How does this stuff factor into the future? Is this something that uh, that uh, is this going to maintain going forward, or, or, or can these things be married in a way that people can have a good time and also uh, and also not disturb the folks that don't care too much about the the thump thump thump? It's a great question, and uh, you know, I think if you if you look at the nightlife industry and how it's evolved in the market, I, I think it's an analog for what's happened in Las Vegas generally, and that is to say that uh, a few nightclubs opened up fairly early on. Uh, they enjoyed some success, uh, and then there was a, a club or two that ultimately came online that had kind of breakout success. And so everybody in the market said, well, I, I need one of those, and I want mine to be better than the last guy's. And better was defined as bigger. And so everyone rushes in and starts investing and adding more and more capacity in order to exploit what is this emerging nightlife opportunity. Uh, and all of a sudden, you have far too much capacity. And it gets intensely competitive. And so what's the answer? Now that you have all these different venues and you have these really shrewd marketeers uh, and club operators and they're constantly trying to change formats and reinvent kind of the experience of them in order to establish or maintain their position as being the best so they're intensely competing with one another. Uh, but because of the added capacity, they now have to appeal to a much bigger and broader audience than they maybe would ideally. And so now all of a sudden they have to change their whole approach and tactics to how they market and who they market to and who they ultimately accommodate. And then all of a sudden they shift and they start programming them differently and you have the DJ era and they extract a lot of the value out of the business proposition. And then the nightclubs turn into performance venues and they're massive and impersonal. And so then what do you do? You have to go figure out a way to carve out spaces within these places that are too big and too large and accommodating a whole bunch of people that aren't necessarily your ideal customer so that you can accommodate and appeal to the ones that are your ideal consumer and figure out how to make money from them. And, and so all of a sudden, you overinvest in an opportunity which forces you to be all things to all people, which means you compromise the experience ultimately for everyone and you take what is a really great opportunity and you marginalize it. There is the cycle of the nightclub industry uh, in this market and I think that it's also, as I said, a bit analogous to what's just happened more broadly across the market. And so, uh, you, you know, we believe that you gotta kinda go back to the fundamentals and you gotta think about what is it that you know, people really want from a nightlife experience and how do they want to feel and who do they want to be with and what do they want to be experiencing and really think about how you can reimagine it and take it in a, in a different direction that allows you to kind of distinguish yourselves from everybody else and allows you to have a model that is sustainable. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of how we're approaching it and thinking about it. 
Um, but as far as, you know, is there a way to conceive of and craft a nightlife experience that you can integrate into a resort experience that doesn't ultimately compromise the, the experience for everybody else that's not participating in the nightlife, you absolutely can. You just have to be really thoughtful about your planning and how and where it gets integrated and, um, and ultimately how it's realized. So, uh, you know, that's, that's how we think about it. The, my perception of much of the nightclubs that we see, they're very targeted at a, an age demographic that's younger than I am. I'm 36. It seems like it's going for a younger group. Is there an opportunity for nightlife for people that are, you know, north of 30? For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, I would say that, you know, nightlife and just being social appeals to everybody. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's an opportunity to appeal to people that are a bit older. Um, you know, it's funny, when we talk about the consumers that we want to appeal to, we, we don't necessarily break them down demographically as much as we do uh, in terms of really understanding kind of their general attitude uh, and the way they approach life. Um, and uh, so they tend to be people that are really active and actively engaged uh, and, and curious and interested, interesting and interested. And, you know, so when we break down and talk about our different types of consumers, that's how we think about them. And, you know, and, and those, are at, those are qualities that you could just easily assign to someone that's in their, you know, 50s and someone that's in their, their 20s. So I think that if, uh, if you create the right kind of experience, you'll attract, you'll attract like-minded people and, and people enjoy being around other people that are, are somewhat like-minded and that they have a lot in common with and that they can, they can engage with. And I think that's, the, that's important. Charles? Uh, I have a couple of short things. Uh, when are the buffet comps going to be reloaded in my Vegas for <laughs> Mandalay Bay? Because I've been waiting and I can't wait any longer. When's the last time you spent a little money on my Vegas, Chuck? I don't have a Facebook account. So. Ah, well, there you go. But, but I was talking to this gentleman right here, Brian, who's <laughs> in the he's in the green shirt, right? And he showed me his app. We we talked about it. He's he's like up to level like three million in the app. He's, he's gathered fourteen red sevens or something. He's he's almost ready to finish. Cool. Finished all, right. all the challenges. Oh, that's and impressive. He, and he told me just a litany of, of stuff that he's he's uh, he's at the end of his chair. He's your biggest fan right here. <laughs> so what do you what do you what do you got to say? Well, I think it goes back. Yeah. Back to just just talk. Yeah. To the transparency that people have asked this in the Facebook groups. Yeah. How do you get the fourth, fifth, sixth rewards? If there was a definitive answer that would get me to spend fifty bucks to get a few more, then we could go for it because obviously a lot of players have been playing it. Probably even more than the 940 odd days in a row that I have. Uh, That's incredible. That's awesome. Anyway, uh, you're not delusional, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you know, there's no, there's never been an answer from the Play Studios customer support as to what would get you those increases. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer because it changes all the time. Quite honestly, and so if you it, let me let me maybe give you a little bit of context, and then you can decide for yourself if that's fair, uh, and whether you want to keep your streak alive and keep playing. Um, so, 
when, when we started, the whole idea and the proposition of MyVegas was, uh, let's deliver the whole Las Vegas experience. Let's not just let people have this fun, free-to-play you know, casino experience as they devote their time and energy, and in some cases their money, to the product. Let's reward that loyalty with real-world stuff, something that nobody else does. And uh, simple idea, great idea, everybody, everybody dug it. And so, you know, when we started, we uh, launched on Facebook and we got up to about a quarter of a million people that played every day. And uh, they went through the cycle of amassing their loyalty points and then they started to redeem rewards. And, you know, we would have several hundred re- rewards being redeemed every week and then that crept up to, you know, a few thousand rewards being redeemed every week. And then, and then uh, we launched our mobile product uh, we've since launched a few mobile products, and we're up to about 1.6 million people that play every day. Uh, and uh, and all of a sudden, you're giving away tens of thousands of rewards every week. And so, you know, our biggest challenge is making sure that we can continue to convince and engage a broader set of rewards partners and convince our existing partners to continue to support us and allocate enough inventory that we can make available to our users. And so there are moments of time when there's more of that inventory that's available. And as a result, we're able, because of its supply, we're able to adjust its availability and its pricing and make it more broadly available. And there are times when there's less of it that is available to us. And as a result, we then have to change some of the pricing and the restrictions and the rules. And, and as much as we, we, we'd love for it to just be a constant and for it to be a lot more transparent and for us to just say, hey, here's what it is, it's just very challenging. And what, and what our history tells us is that whenever we do say, look, you know, here's the threshold you have to play to in order to enjoy certain rewards. If that changes, that is really off-putting for people. And so what we found is that, you know, while the, the opaque nature of it is a, a bit frustrating, it is the, the better of the two alternatives to publishing a set of rules that then constantly have to change. So that's how we've elected to manage it. Um, so... There you go. <laughs> Jack? Yeah, I, uh, I'm curious, uh, what do you think about the parking thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, it's You funny. don't even have a parking lot. You have a dirt lot right now. There's plenty of parking. You can make some money. You, know? you can yeah, make exactly. a lot of money. <laughs> free People are welcome Uber to park stand. on my dirt for free. Right. Um, uh, actually, I don't think you can because I'd have a li- I'd have insurance and liability <laughs> issues. But uh, it w- So you see, you know, insurance and liability means I have to incur a cost in order to accommodate parking, and I'd look to have that defrayed in some way. And so it, you know, I, I guess there, in some respects you can make a case for it. Um, Look, I understand why it's a controversial topic, you know, when, when for so long people have had the, the, the opportunity to just park for free and all of a sudden they're going to have to pay for it. Um, you know, I get why that's frustrating and doesn't seem fair. Um, and I would also say that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, like, like you all, I'm a consumer. And uh, if, if the businesses that are responsible or are the stewards of these different properties and these experiences, um, you know, they're faced with having to make sure that they are stable and viable and profitable and healthy. And, uh, and so they'll make decisions along the way that, you know, maybe on the surface we don't really care about. But 
I guess in balance, you just have to look at, look, is the experience that I have when I go there for a show or for dinner or for nightlife or for, or for a concert, you know, if in balance, it's a great experience and my having to pay a few dollars for parking, does that really, did it really compromise how I was left feeling? Uh, if not, and it, it helps to, to support their, you know, delivery of the service and, you know, promotes the kind of health and the vitality of their business and it keeps people, you know, kind of employed and, you know, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. Will it, there be parking comps in my Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, maybe. Is that something that if everybody would like parking comps, I imagine I can get some for sure. So that, that's great. So, Send me the check. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else, Chuck, from the uh, esteemed department of Chuck, Chuck and Chuck? No, I just want to thank Andrew. Oh, my pleasure. Really, really wonderful to be here. And, um, you know, I appreciate everybody's interest and in, in support and what we're doing and, um, so I thank you guys very much for the opportunity to be here. Two more quick questions. Oh, okay, sorry. Right. One is, please describe in detail what your standard room will look like. <laughs> <laughs> no, a little bit less of that and a little bit more of this. Yeah. I see. Um, slightly more seriously, uh, I'm going along with Chuck and John. He's out there somewhere. Going to visit Macau. I've never been to Macau. For um, you, I sh I'm sure have been multiple oh, yeah. times. Yeah. What shouldn't we miss when we go to Macau? Look, I mean, the, the truth of it is, Macau's not that big, and so you should take it all in. Uh, you know, it's it, it, in very many ways parallels Las Vegas. There is the kind of Macau proper. Um, which is on the peninsula there, and it feels a bit like the kind of downtown experience. It's got far more density, um, and, uh, and uh, it's got a lot of history, and you can kind of just feel it when you're there. And then you go out to Kotai and the Kotai Strip, and it is awesome. <laughs> I don't really quite know how to describe it. It is literally like there's a group of people over there that said, well, we want that, but we want it to be bigger and grander and more extraordinary. And when you, when you consider that what they're pointing at and saying, we want that, but we want it to be bigger, and they're saying the Las Vegas experience, which is already you know, just completely supersized, um, it's hard to imagine. But you know, the, the complexes that are over there are just, uh, I mean, overwhelming. And so it's just a fascinating thing to see. And then when you also consider that, you know, over the course of the next several years, you know, the amount of capacity that's coming online into that market will, will nearly double the scale or size of the market. Uh, it's really a, a pretty amazing thing. So I would say, you know, go check it all out and soak it all up. And, and then, you know, shamelessly, I'll plug my partner. Uh, make sure you don't miss uh, both Studio City and City of Dreams. I, I think both are... Altera, too. And Altera. I actually stay at Altera. That place is awesome. That's where I prefer to stay. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, you know, City of Dreams and, and uh, what they've done with Melco Crown is, uh, is really quite great. Um, you know, they are, without a doubt, among the luxury leaders that are in that market over there. And I think that uh, Studio City, more than any other project that has been built in Macau, uh, kind of speaks to kind of the idea and I think the promise that the concessionaires made about really investing in the market and diversifying and making it far more entertainment-oriented and uh, more of a leisure destination than just you know purely capitalizing on the raw gambling kind of demand and interest. 
And so I think that our, our partners there have been really, really good stewards of, um, you know, of kind of the concession that they have. So um, I would, I'd go check it all out, but don't miss those two places. All right. Thank you so much. As My Chuck pleasure. said, we really appreciate it. Please, everybody, give uh, Andrew a hand. My pleasure. Thanks very much.